Well, good evening. It's good to be back together. Revelation 16, if you turn there. Revelation 16. <laughs> At this point, believe it or not, we've taken a little half, a little less than half a year of Sunday nights. So if we met every Sunday night and taught this instead of doing the other things that we do, about a little bit less than half a year we've been on this tour through the book of Revelation. And like a tour, it takes you many places, but not everywhere you could go, and certainly not everywhere you could walk. And so we don't see all the vistas. We won't cross-reference everything, although tonight we will cross-reference a number of things because they're in my mind to do, and I think it'll enrich you. But its goals, really, as we've set them out at the beginning, were really to acquaint you with this book, to model how to go about studying a book like this, uh, the chronology of this book, the language of this book, uh, to acquaint you a little bit with how this book fits into the world timetable, to give you some more resources to add to your own for further study. So that's really the goals we set before us, the goals I set before myself to do, and so that's really where we're headed and what we've desired to do. Uh, Psalm chapter 9, verse 5, you can see a resounding theme here. As we think about a God of love, certainly the songs we hear uh, Talk about God's love and, and all of his mercy and all of those things are certainly part of his nature. Uh, but there's a certain portion uh, of God's nature that we don't sing about too often, although Charles Wesley hymns certainly give us that sense. But uh, Psalm 9, 5, here he says in verse 5, he says, You've rebuked the nations. Uh, you have, go ahead, uh, Will, to the next slide if you would. You have rebuked the nations. You have destroyed the wicked. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy has come to an end in perpetual ruins, and you have uprooted the cities. The very memory of them has perished, but the Lord abides forever. He has established His throne. What does it say? For judgment. He's established His throne for judgment. And really, that psalm captures a lot of what we're talking about as we work our way through the book of Revelation, where we've come to the end of God's long-suffering, of His patience for those to turn, and now he brings the world into judgment and into his wrath. Psalm 96.10, again, very similar. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Indeed, the world is firmly established. It will not be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all it contains. Let the field exult on all that is in it. Then all the trees of the forest will sing for joy before the Lord, for He is coming. He's coming to judge the earth. He'll judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in His faithfulness. God's established the fact that He will judge the world, that He will judge individuals. It's not a hidden fact. It's been apparent all along. Uh, men get away with what they get away with, and for over the history of the world, of course, men have done many, many things which the Lord has waited and stored up His wrath. But even the world itself claps, it applauds that things will be set right because He's going to judge the world in His righteousness and the peoples in His faithfulness. Now, last time we were together, we looked at really the last series of judgments, uh, the bold judgments. So if you'd look at verse 1, if you would, and we'll kind of catch ourselves back up. It was uh, back in October when we were in this book last. So Revelation chapter 16, verse 1, we'll just read them briefly and summarize. And on the back side of your notes, you'll find these answers filled in for you. 
Uh, we try to give that to you so you can have a set of notes that is complete at the, at the close of our time together. If you've missed some and you'd like to have them, please let me know. We can certainly make those available to you. But uh, verse 1 says, Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went out and poured uh, his bowl on the earth, and it became a loathsome and malignant sore on the people who had the mark of the beast and who worshipped his image. So there's no fiddling around. If you take the mark, you worship the beast, you get the sore, and the first bowl judgment is terrible sores. And these are malignant ulcers we saw. And they fall only on those who are part of the world system. That's the Antichrist and his kingdom, not believers. Verse 3. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became a blood like that of a dead man, and every living thing in the sea died. So that second bowl judgment is the sea turns to blood. So it's a judgment on the sea. The whole thing this time, and it happens immediately. All the seas will become dark and thick and coagulated like the blood of a corpse, and everything in the sea is going to die. Verse 4. Then the third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. That third bowl judgment is the water sources turned to blood. So it's a judgment on water supply. All the fresh water supplies turned to blood right on the heels of a severe drought. And this is followed by some contemporary, uh, some commentary, if you would, from heaven, verses 5 through 7. And the angels agree that this judgment's just and right. It fits the crime. And uh, because men have poured out the blood of the martyrs, and so they, the Lord has given them blood to drink. And so once again, uh, uh, an appropriate, uh, appropriate judgment on those who have murdered the righteous. Now, verse 8, The fourth angel poured out his bowl upon the sun, and it was given to it to scorch men with fire. Verse 9, Men were scorched with a fierce heat. So this fourth bowl judgment is a scorching sun, an unbearable heat that will scorch the earth. Uh, melt the ice caps and you would need to be underground to be protected like believers probably are. And this is going to be followed by some commentary again from earth toward heaven. Uh, verse 9, instead of repenting, we saw uh, that they blasphemed the name of God. Instead of giving him glory, they cursed him. Uh, Isaiah 42.8, I'm just reminded of that. I am the Lord, the Lord says, that is my name. I'll not give my glory to another nor my praise to graven images. Uh, although they will not recognize he receives glory anyway. Verse 10, The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom became darkened. And so the fifth bowl judgment is darkness. Only the kingdom of the Antichrist, though, is affected. And it goes on to say, And they gnawed their tongues because of pain. Verse 11, They blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, and they did not repent of their deeds. These judgments unlike the other ones that we saw, are cumulative. So no break in them, one right after another, one right on top of another. And so they're still in great pain from their sores and from the scorching heat and from the drought and from the lack of all the basic necessities of life. And then they receive this other judgment. Now, verse 12 says, The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river, the Euphrates, and its water was dried up so that they would be prepared for the kings from the east. And we saw last time that the sixth bowl judgment is the drying up of the Euphrates. Supernatural judgment from flood stage to dry. So you've got a scorching sun, likely mounting, uh, melting down all ice caps. And, uh, Mount Ararat there would be close uh, to the headwaters. So you'd have all this uh, flooding from flood stage to dry. God supernaturally does this, makes a way for the kings of the earth to come toward uh, Jerusalem. In verse 13, we see uh, three demons go out of the mouth of the dragon and the beast and the false prophet, and they stir the kings of the earth to come to war. In verse 15, all believers are... are still alive on the earth, are encouraged. Verse 16 says, And they gathered them together 
to the place which is in Hebrew called Armageddon. And all the armies are uh, coming and they're excited, but they don't know that they are coming for the day of the Lord. Now, I want to put it on pause there just for a second. I'd like you to hold your finger here and turn, if you would, to Ezekiel chapter 38. Would you do that? Because this can kind of help clear up some things here. I was just reading some uh, things earlier uh, in the week and discussing with my wife some things that she's reading. And I just thought that maybe I would stop here for a second. Ezekiel's where I am now in my uh, yearly Bible reading. And if you're reading through with the calendar that we have in the back that looks similar to this, uh, you're about right here as well. So you probably read some of these things, perhaps recently. But here you're going to find the references to Gog and Magog. It's an interesting prophecy, one that many writers have written about. It's been commented on extensively and uh, some discussion about when this happens and who this is. Uh, But just as you think about Gog, realize that's a word for high or supreme one. Magog is the location uh, that he is from. So a prince, uh, a prince of princes, if you will, uh, from a location, Magog, and that uh, some some question about where that is, but in general, modern-day Turkey, and even as far north as the Caspian or, or the Black Sea, but that general location, and in general, Gog and Magog have always referred to Israel's enemies. But in particular here, it, it coincides well with what we're studying because it talks about a time period that we just got through talking about. We just got through talking about the armies of the earth marching towards Jerusalem. This is exactly what uh, we're talking about, uh, the prophecy that Ezekiel re- was uh, given here. Now, before I start reading, I want you to understand something. Ezekiel has given this prophecy for the encouragement of Israel. Israel has been deported. The land has been destroyed. Uh, things have been burned and all the, all the temple things were taken. Everything has been wrecked that they know about that they associate with God's blessing. And so they're in this terrible state brought on by their own rebellion. The Lord sent them pr- uh, prophet after prophet to warn them to turn from their wicked ways. They would not do it. The Lord was forced to then uh, punish his own people. And so Ezekiel is writing this because the Lord has given them this vision. And he's talking about a restored Israel. He's talking about a restored Jerusalem. He's talking about a restored temple. And not only is it just general restoration remarks, but it gets very detailed into exactly what it's going to look like. So this is very encouraging uh, for the Jew, particularly if you think about the time period when they would have read it. They would have been very encouraged, but it's still... For us, as we sit in this uh, church age and understand a lot of these things now that they didn't have revealed to them then, and we see this, we understand where this fits. Now, I'd like you to read with me. We're going to read two chapters. I'm only going to comment on it briefly because we don't have a lot of time. We could spend weeks just here. But I want you to hear the language, and I think that you'll start to see uh, how that can be connected to what we're talking about. Verse thir- chapter 38, uh, Ezekiel, verse 1. And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, set your face toward Gog of the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh, Meshech, and Tubal, and prophesy against him and say, verse 3, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I'm against you, O Gog, prince of Rosh, Meshech, and Tubal. Verse 4, I will turn you about and put hooks in your jaw, and I will bring you out and all your army, horses and horsemen, all of them splendidly attired, A great company with bucklers and shield, all of them wielding swords, Persia, verse 5, Ethiopia, and put with them, all of them with shield and helmet, Gomer, verse 6, with all its troops, Bethogorma from the remote part of the north, with all its troops, many people with you. Verse 7, be prepared and prepare yourself, you and all your companies that are assembled about you, and be a guard for them. 
After many days, you will be summoned in the latter days. That's a pretty neat reference, and we start getting a timestamp. This is not going to occur. Here's Israel. They've already been deported. Uh, Babylon has already marched. Uh, Syria has taken the northern kingdom. Babylon has taken the southern. They're destroyed. So obviously it's talking about a future time with a future restoration and a future marching. And we're talking about in Revelation now, in chapter 16 and 17, that future marching. Okay, the latter years you will come into the land that is restored from the sword whose inhabitants have been gathered from many nations to the mountains of Israel, which had been a continual waste. But his people were brought out from the nations, and you are living securely, all of them. Pardon, they are living securely, all of them. Verse 9. You will go up. You will come like a storm. You will be like a cloud covering the land, you and all your troops and many peoples with you. Verse 10, Thus saith the Lord God, it will come about on that day that thoughts will come into your mind and you will devise an evil plan. And you'll say, I will go up against the land of unwalled villages. I'll go up against those who are at rest that live securely. And remember, we talked about this. The Antichrist himself will develop a peace policy with Israel. He'll broker that. He'll give a false peace. And so Israel really, in their own sense, at that point in the tribulation, will be dwelling from their own perspective, securely, because they have been given that security from a false Messiah. All right, so this is wonderful things that we can understand now as the Lord has given us further uh, prophecy from the New Testament. Pick up, uh, let's see, verse 11, you'll say, I'll go up against the land of unwalled villages. I'll go up against those who are at rest that will live securely, all of them living without walls and having no bars or gates. Verse 12, to capture spoil and to seize plunder, to turn your hand against the waste places which are not inhabited, and against the people who are gathered from the nations who have acquired cattle and goods who live at the center of the world. Verse 13, Sheba and Dedan and the merchants of Tarshish with all its villages will say to you, have you come to capture spoil? Have you assembled your company to to seize plunder, to carry away silver and gold, to take away cattle and goods and capture great spoil? Verse 14, therefore, prophesy, son of man, and say to Gog, thus saith the Lord God, on that day when my people Israel are living securely, will you not know it? You will come from your place out of the remote parts of the north, you and many peoples with you, all of them riding on horses, a great assembly and a mighty army. And you'll come up against my people Israel like a cloud to cover the land. It shall come about in the last day that I will bring you against my land so that the nations may know me. And I am sanctified through you before their eyes, O God. So what's going to happen? Huge destruction. The world's going to focus their attention back on the Lord and his power to deliver. Verse 17, Thus saith the Lord God, Are you the one of whom I spoke in former days through my servants, the prophets of Israel, prophesied in those days for many years that I would bring you against them? And of course he's referring to Daniel and other prophecies which came earlier than this, which would have told and foretold this type of thing that was coming. Verse 18, It will come about on that day when God comes against the land of Israel, declares the Lord God, that my fury will mount up in my anger, In my zeal and in my blazing wrath, I declare that on that day there will surely be a great earthquake in the land of Israel. And we're going to read about that tonight. Verse 20, the fish of the sea and the birds of the heaven, the beasts of the field, all the creeping things that creep on the earth, all the men who are on the face of the earth will shake at my presence. The mountains also will be thrown down. The steep pathways will collapse and every wall will fall up to the ground. Verse 21, I will call for a sword against him on all my mountains, declares the Lord God. 
Every man's sword will be against his brother. Verse 22, with pestilence and with blood, I will enter into judgment with him. I will rain on him and on his troops and on the many peoples who are with him. A torrential rain with hailstones, fire, brimstone. Verse 23, I will magnify myself, sanctify myself, and make myself known in the sight of many nations that they will know that I am the Lord. Now look at chapter 39. We're just kind of skimming over the top, but I want you to catch this because this is important. It's a, it holds a, pro, a prominent spot in the prophecy of Ezekiel, although not, it's kind of hard to connect if you don't connect all the dots with what we currently know from the book of Revelation. What we see is going to occur at the closing time of the tribulation. Verse 30, chapter 39, verse 1. And you, son of man, prophesy against Gog and say, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I'm against you, O Gog, Prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. Now, as you hear that Gog, realize, again, you have someone who is always referred to as an enemy of Israel. But now, uh, as you have the Antichrist, you realize that's the sum of all the enemies of Israel. The sum of all the hate that's ever been poured out. The sum of all the enemies. That's what we have. We've seen that as we've looked at the Antichrist. We have the sum of the false religion. We have the sum of man's system. There's always been man's system here and there as pockets in history. We've always seen people worship the emperor. We've always seen, and these things come and then they go. But what we see in, in the end time here is that the Antichrist personifies all of those things. He, he personifies the greatest ruler ever of man's own power. The, the one who's, who men have always worshipped false, falsely, but he is the pinnacle of that false worship. And the false religion that is there is also the pinnacle. So you see, as we refer to God, just realize that um, we're, we're able to understand more. And those prophet, as we read in the New Testament, we see that you know, when the prophets wrote, they, they realized they weren't always writing to themselves. They were writing for us understand that we sit in that privileged place where we can see some of these things now and understand them to be true because of what we understand about what Christ has done and then the further revelation that John has given us. Let's pick up verse 3. I will strike your bow from your uh, left hand and dash, you, uh, dash down the arrows from your right hand. You will fall on the mountains of Israel, you and all your troops and the peoples who are with you. I will give you as food to every kind of predatory bird and beast of the field. You will fall on the open field, for it is I who have spoken, declares the Lord God, and I will send fire upon Magog and those who inhabit the coastlands in safety, and they will know that I am the Lord. Verse 7, My holy name I will make known in the midst of my people Israel, and I will not let my holy name be profaned any more, and the nations will know that I am the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. Is he clear? No longer you're going to profane my name. No more are you going to turn away. No more will you not realize who I am. And this falls right very clearly into the category of what we've been studying in, tri in the tribulation period. This is exactly the reason why it's brought on the earth. So that men will realize and women will realize that God is the Lord, that Jesus is the owner of the earth, and it's going to be turned back over to him. And the nations will know that I am the Lord and the Holy One in Israel. Verse 8, Behold, it is coming and it shall be done, declares the Lord God. That is the day of which I have spoken. How established do you think it is? absolutely established. Behold, it's coming, and it shall be done, the Lord says. Can you imagine how, how affirmative he is about this? Verse 9, Then those who inhabit the cities of Israel will go out and make fires with the weapons and burn them, both shields and bucklers, bows and arrows, war clubs and spears. For seven years they will make fires of them. Verse 10, They will not take 
They will not take wood from the field or gather firewood from the forest, nor will they make fires with the weapons. And they will take the spoil of those who despoiled them and seize the plunder of those who plundered them, declares the Lord. And so that's going to carry us, obviously, into the millennial reign of Christ, isn't it? As we see this uh, great uh, uh, conquering of the Lord over the enemies of Israel, over the enemies of, of true worship, we see that this final end part will extend into the millennial kingdom. And we understand that's going to happen. Verse, verse 11. On that day I will give Gog a burial ground there in Israel, the valley of those who pass by east of the sea, and it will block off those who would pass by, so they will bury Gog there with all his horde, and they will call at the valley of Hamangog, verse 12, for seven months the house of Israel will be burying them in order to cleanse the land. Verse 13, even all the people of the land will bury them, and it will be to their renown on the day that I glorify myself, declares the Lord God. They will set apart men who will constantly pass through the land, burying those who were passing through, even those left on the surface of the ground in order to cleanse it. It's going to be jobs of some people to constantly scour the earth and the face of the earth, particularly around Israel, to make sure no bones are exposed, that the land's not defiled, that everything is buried, that the blood is cleaned up. And at the end of seven months, they will make a search. Verse 15, as those who pass through the land pass through and anyone sees a man's bone, he'll set up a marker by it until the barriers have buried it in the valley of Ham and Gog. Verse 16, and even the name of the city will be Hamonah and they will cleanse the land. Verse 17, and for you, son of man, thus saith the Lord God, speak to every kind of bird and to every beast of the field Assemble and come together from every side to my sacrifice, which I'm going to sacrifice for you as a great sacrifice on the mountains of Israel. That you may eat flesh and drink blood, verse 18. You will eat the flesh of mighty men and drink the blood of the princes of the earth as though they were rams and lambs and goats and bulls, all of them fatlings of Bashan. Verse 19, so you will eat fat until you're glutted and drink blood until you're drunk from my sacrifice, which I have sacrificed for you. You will be glutted by my table with horses and charioteers, with mighty men and all men of war, declares the Lord God. And I will set my glory among the nations, and all the nations will see my judgment, which I have exalted, executed in my hands, which I have laid on them. Verse 22, and the house of Israel will know that I am the Lord their God from that day onward. And the nations will know that the house of Israel went into exile for their iniquity because they acted treacherously against me and as I hid my face from them. So I gave them into the hand of their adversaries and all of them fell by the sword according to their uncleanness and according to their transgressions. I dealt with them and I hid my face. And then he goes on, verse 25, but we won't read it. Uh, I'm just going to kind of summarize it for you. He talks, he goes on, it's a wonderful passage. He talks about the true restoration of Israel. And as you move on through these closing chapters of Ezekiel, and you get up to like chapter 47 and 48, some of my favorite imagery, so detailed, as it gives the, the uh, millennial temple that's going to be built there and how beautiful it's going to be. And out of the east gate is going to flow a river. Because when we get done tonight, you're going to say that the earth is completely wrecked. And you would be exactly right. It's the Lord's. He can wreck it if he wants to because he's made it out of nothing and he can certainly remake it. But it is going to be wrecked. And once we close all of these judgments out and this huge earthquake at the end, there's not going to be anything, not any system that continues to work like it was supposed to work. And the Lord is going to allow this river to flow. And you can read this. It's marvelous. Read it tonight when you go home. This river to flow out of the east gate, which is the, the gate where 
Christ himself is allowed to enter and exit. But out of the east gate, there's going to be this small stream that comes out of the, uh, the right-hand side of the gate. And as it flows away from the temple, it expands greatly. And once you get about a mile and a half down, uh, it's not just a stream anymore. It's a river that no man could cross unless he swims. And that river flows into the Dead Sea and continues to flood uh, those waters that surround Israel that have been always a waste and are even more a waste now. And everywhere the water flows, things are healed. And the Lord begins to restore that time, uh, the land in the Millennial Kingdom. And fish are restored and all, uh, trees are along the river for, the heal, for healing of people and for fruit to eat. It's just a marvelous thing to think about. And how encouraging that must have been for Israel to sit in exile, uh, to not have a home, to know the temple has been burned that the glory of the Lord departed, and to think that this, is, this still stands in their future as sure as if it was already there. And as Ezekiel is taken on this tour of this temple, uh, the details are so clear that Ezekiel knows for sure it's as good as already there. And that's kind of the sense you get as you read through the book of Ezekiel, particularly in the last chapters, that this is for sure. And the Lord just lets Ezekiel fast forward, if you will, into time and just see it already built with all the things that are going to ha- be happening there. So... I wanted to give you that because that kind of ties together the Gog-Magog prophecy with what we're going to study right now in the marching of the armies on Jerusalem and all the destruction that will occur and then the closeout then of this tribulation period and a moving in, if you will, to the millennial kingdom and how the things will need to be adjusted and how things will need to be cleaned up and the Lord begins to heal the land and people are given jobs to do. Uh, where they'll have to be burying people and, and putting away all the, all the wickedness and the filth that was part of this last chapter of time. And so these armies are excited. They're coming, uh, but they don't know that this has already been prophesied from of old, that Gog Magog has already been talked about, that this is the end of them. They're coming for this great battle. And once again, Gog and Magog, the same imagery will be mentioned again as we get to the close of Revelation and that's the close of the millennial period where for a brief time uh, there seems to be some, like there's going to be some insurrection against the Lord and his, and his uh, city. But that's quickly crushed. But let's go on now. Look, if you would, back to Revelation chapter 16, verse 17. And we'll just kind of move step by step through this. And I think you'll enjoy this as you've got that perspective and tied together. We don't always get a chance to do that. If we did that every time, uh, we'd be maybe in chapter 4. <laughs> I know you want to move a little more quickly than that. So that can kind of tie that together. And, and you can look forward to a time in Daniel as we close out uh, Revelation. All right, Revelation 16, verse 17. Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl upon the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple and from the throne, saying, It is done. First thing that happens is God declares that with this judgment, that the judgment on earth then is complete. And that means that the ceremony to turn the title deed of the earth back over to its rightful owner then is also complete. And we're going to see the results of this judgment, and it is unbelievable. Verse 18. And there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder, and there was a great earthquake such as there had not been since, since, I'm sorry, such as there had not been since man came up to be upon the earth. So great an earthquake was it, and so mighty. Seventh bold judgment is world record destruction. And we kind of got a sense of that as we just read the Ezekiel passage that the Lord was going to shake everything, everywhere, and level it. And that's exactly what's going to go on. Flashes of lightning, sounds and peals of thunder, and a great earthquake. Now listen, such as there had not been since man came to be upon the earth. Now, we also have in a very recent memory in the tribulation period, a pretty big, a pretty sizable earthquake, wouldn't you say? where the mountains are moved and no island remained and, and all the ships are wrecked and all that. So they, we've had some serious earthquakes already. 
But this is going to be greater by far than anything that has so far occurred on the earth. And that's world record destruction. It's beyond really the scope of our imagination. Uh, on a scale, I don't think that we can comprehend. And since you know, the earthquake in Chile and since the earthquake in Haiti and even before that, the tsunami of 2004, we can imagine a lot, can't we? We can imagine a lot of destruction. We have seen television images of huge destruction and tremendous suffering of people. So we can imagine a lot, even more perhaps than any other generation that's come in, the, in, in, a, in a short period of time. There's certainly been the destructions that have occurred over a long period of time. But in our generation, we've seen some huge catastrophes, and this will be beyond even the scope of anything we can imagine. And it starts with an earthquake. It's beyond the severity of the one that we saw that was about four years ago in tribulation time from where we are. Go back four years. We saw an earthquake there, but it's, it surpasses that. Chapter 6, verse 12, the sixth seal judgment, if you remember, it says that every mountain and island were moved. So this earthquake is going to be more severe than that one. And chapter 8, verse 5, the seventh seal judgment says there was another mighty earthquake. So let's see what happened. Look at verse 19. Uh, so great an earthquake was it, and so mighty. Verse 19, the great city was split into three parts. Now, the great city is the city of Jerusalem. That's who we're referring to there. Now, I'd like to cross-reference again. Now, we haven't done this a lot, so we're doing it twice in one night. Zechariah 14, 1. I'm going to put it on the screen behind me, or you can turn to it if you'd like. Certainly, you can write it in the margin of your Bible. But Zechariah 14, 1, 1 through 11 and we'll read that together for time's sake. Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided among you. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. And once again, we have the same reference, same time period, same armies are referred to. And the city will be captured, and the houses plundered, and the women ravished, and half the city exiled. But the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. Now, we read this before. A war raged against Jerusalem by Antichrist immediately preceding and during the battle of Armageddon. So it's all during the same uh, time sequence. Right before Jesus comes out of the sky. Uh, amen to that, right? He's going to set all this straight and he's going to fix all of this. Verse 3. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against these nations as when he fights on a day of battle. Now, when the Lord goes to fight on a day of battle, I think that's probably going to be pretty severe, don't you? And that, that just, that's very intimidating to me to read. The Lord's going to go and fight as he goes on a day of battle. So he's going prepared to fight. It's not just that he takes care of it here or he does something and it's done. He's going prepared to wage war. Verse 4, In the day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. Now, that's important that you remember that, that when Christ comes for the, for the rapture, his feet don't touch the earth. And we don't have associated with that type of commentary anything that has to do with judgment. But here, when Christ comes and stands on the earth, there is judgment. And so he is going to come. He's going to stand. Uh, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley. So this earthquake is going to create a huge rift. So that half of the mountain will move towards the north and the other half towards the south. You'll, you will flee by the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains will reach to Ezel. Yes, you will flee just as you fled before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. Verse 6, In that day there will be no light, the luminaries will dwindle, for it will be a unique day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but it will, be, it will come about that at evening time there will be light. Verse 8, and in that day, living waters will flow out of Jerusalem, 
half of them towards the eastern sea, another half towards the western sea, and it will be in summer as well as in winter, so it's going to flow year-round, verse 9. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. In that day, the Lord will be the only one, and his name the only one. Isn't that great? Verse 10. And all the land will be changed into a plain from Geba to Rimmon, south to Jerusalem, but Jerusalem will rise and remain on its site. From Benjamin's gate, as far as the place of the first gate to the corner gate, and from the tower of Hananel to the king's wine presses, people will live in it, and there will no longer be a curse, for Jerusalem will dwell in security. We'll stop right there for Zechariah's across reference. But the main thing I want you to notice about the passage is that the earthquake does not destroy Jerusalem. It actually prepares it for future habitation. And of course, if the Lord is controlling all this, this is not difficult for him to do. And it gets it ready for the millennial reign of Christ. Now, Revelation 16, verse 19. Let's see what happens to everyone else. Verse 19. Then the great city was split into three parts. And the cities of the nations fell. Babylon the Great was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of his fierce wrath. The rest of the cities of the earth are not going to be improved like Jerusalem is. They are going to be wrecked. Whatever was left of the cities, whatever had been built back temporarily, whatever kind of things had been reestablished, if you will, during that short time, uh, four years ago, is leveled. Nothing's left. Verse 20. And every island fled away and the mountains here it is, were not found. So this is a huge catastrophe worldwide. This time they're not just moved like they were in chapter 6. Uh, they are destroyed, leveled. The geography, the topography then, as we understand it, in this shaking that the Lord's going to do of the earth, completely altered. But that's not all. Look at verse 21. And huge hailstones, we just read that in Ezekiel, didn't we? And huge hailstones, about 100 pounds each, came down from heaven upon men. And men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, because its plague was extremely severe. Everyone who survives is on their way to Palestine. Jerusalem isn't destroyed. She's saved. She's elevated. And that brings to a close the wrath poured out upon the earth, with the exception of the uprising at the close of the millennial reign. Now, chapter 17 and chapter 18 are very important. And because of time, do you want to do the last part of the notes? Are you into it or do you want to this? You want to let it go for a little bit. Well, it's going to be a while before we'll be back to this, so let's stick with it, all right? I won't keep you too long. Chapter 17 is very important. And once again, these are chapters that fill in, again, some of the things that have been occurring in the meantime as we've unfolded all of this and we've seen the timestamps and these successive judgments brought on the earth more and more severe and the earth more and more destroyed and people uh, judged and things that are occurring, worship of the, of the beast and all of that stuff are occurring. These fill in some gaps. Uh, in the second half of the tribulation, just as we've seen throughout the books, uh, as we've worked our way through the, throughout this book and the chapters. Chapters used to help John fill in the gaps. Here John gets to see how these last judgments affect the Antichrist and the world system. And uh, some of the things will go on during these final years and months, and they will also tell us about the religion uh, during the tribulation. Chapter 17 talks about it. There will be religion. It is a false church, and you know what it's called, Right? Um, it's, if the real church is called the bride, the false church is going to be called the what? The prostitute, the harlot. Uh, John, just put this one on right here, if you would. I think we're about out of battery. That's what that sounds like. Let's look at Revelation 17.1, if you would. And one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and spoke with me. So these are the guys that have already 
poured out their wrath and is going to come and talk to John. Come here. I'll show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters. Now, we're going to fill in some other things that are going on uh, that are at the same time that these other judgments are being poured out. Now, remember, waters and seas and oceans uh, in prophetic literature many times refer to Gentile nations, to tribes, to tongues. And uh, remember where the beast comes from, chapter 13, verse 1. He comes out of the sea. And so we, we referenced that back then. So... Uh, I'll show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters. So all the nations, this great harlot, all the nations, part of what's going on in each of these nations. And she has quite a following. Verse 2. With whom the kings of the earth committed acts of immorality, those who dwelt on the earth were made drunk with the wine of her immorality. Verse 3. And he carried me away in the spirit to a wilderness. So he takes John away. He sees all this destruction. He's witnessing all of this in a vision. And then he... I think he takes him away just to kind of settle him down. It's a more sedate environment. And let John think through all of these things. So he takes John away in the spiritual wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast full of blasphemous names, having seven heads and ten horns. So who's she riding? Who's the beast? That's the Antichrist. Beast is always the Antichrist in, this, uh, in Revelation. We understand that. She's riding the world system, the system of man. And so she's being carried along with this system. So it goes hand in hand. Now... I can think of one organization that fits that description now. Uh, Dave Hunt has written a, a very good book many, a number of years ago, 1994, A Woman Rides the Beast, The Roman Catholic Church in the Last Days. And it's a very good read. I think that you would enjoy that if you want some supplemental reading. But she's writing the world system. And, of course, Dave Hunt points towards their Catholic Church. I think that there's probably going to be some connection there. I don't know. It probably will be more developed in some ways, some, somehow changed into that perfect uh, false church. But listen to the description. Verse 4. The woman was clothed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls. So, a couple of things about, trademarks about this false church. She is unbelievably rich to begin with. The church is beautiful to behold. So it's not ugly. They're not chasing after something gory, okay? Remember the description of the Antichrist, as we saw in chapter 13, verse 4. Who is like him? Who can make war with him? So these are things that people say about God, they're saying about the Antichrist. So they're following a very charismatic, a very powerful leader, and the church itself, this false church, is going to be beautiful. It's going to look awesome. And uh, it's going to be something to behold. So uh, with the false church, the false religion, this prostitute, she's going to be beautiful. She will delude people by the millions, Scripture tells us. They are not chasing after something bad, something ugly. Verse 4 says, The woman was clothed in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a gold cup full of abominations and of all the unclean things of her immorality. In other words, there isn't anything that she has not done. And she drinks out of that cup, and she is not true to the Lord, nor is she true to the revelation about Jesus. Uh, so she drinks out of the same cup that the world system drinks out of. So she's not pure. She's always been corrupt, and she always drinks this corrupt drink. Verse 5, and on her forehead a name was written, a mystery. Now remember in the New Testament, a mystery is always something that was hidden, and now all of a sudden, oh, I see. Now it's been made visible. That's how we understand this word mystery, something that was hidden but now revealed. Here's what it says, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. All the world religions. Now this one is the worst. Remember we have kind of the, the culmination of all these things, of, of the... Uh, a false Messiah, everyone who's always imagined themselves to be God, it's summed up in the false Messiah. A false religion, every, every religion that's ever raised itself up is summed up in this false religion, this false church. 
And uh, may I add that this one must be really bad to, uh, to exceed what the Catholic Church has already done and continues to do as a false church, as a false religion. So, uh, but many of these descriptions, as uh, you'll understand them, those particularly who are out of the Catholic Church, many of these religions about, uh, or these descriptions about being unbelievably rich, about being beautiful, all fit. And the things that the Church has done, the Catholic Church has done throughout the history of, of uh, at least modern uh, history, and the things that they've been involved with and the abominations they've taken part in, particularly around World War II, would, if you have not read any of this history or don't know this, it's not that that's broadcast on the Catholic websites, so you'd have to search, but you'll find that these are just unbelievable things. But verse 6, whatever this religion is, this false religion, uh, it must do a lot to exceed already uh, the false church, uh, Catholic church. Verse 6, and I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the witnesses of Jesus. She has slaughtered without mercy believers by the untold millions. She has slaughtered the 144,000 and she reveled in it. And so there's much blood on this false church's hands. Verse 6, when I saw her, John says this, I wondered greatly. And it's always struck me as an interesting way to remark about uh, the false church. John, in all of his wisdom, with all of his understanding, with the revelation the Lord has given him, with the tutoring he's received by the angels, and he sees this, and it was a mystery, it was hidden, and now it's revealed, and he sees all that's gone on, and he sees the connection now through at least his, what he's witnessed uh, in the world, and he sees this, and John has a curiosity, and I think really a fear mixed with great amazement. It's just so big, it's just so amazing, it's just so uh, complex everywhere. It's been drinking these abominations all this time, and now it's revealed and everybody sees what's going on. And it's always rode on the back of, of man's system. It's always gotten rich off of man's system. Everything about man's system has, has driven it and propelled it. And John's, he's got some curiosity, he's got some fear, I think, mixed with some amazement. The sheer size, the wickedness, uh, and the wealth, and the connections the false religion has is really beyond, I think, John's scope and his, his faculty to understand. And so he just wonders in amazement. He can't believe what he sees. And it sits on the beast, and the false church rides on the back of the Antichrist, and the Antichrist is the political leader, and the false harlot and the religious world system exists altogether. And so that's where, that's where John is, and that's how he remarks, and that's a good place as we look at the text to, to pause, because we've already gone ten minutes over. But it sits on the beast, and uh, get this political leader. Next time we're together, the angel's going to help John with his fear and with his amazement and with some of his uh, concern as he explains this union between the Antichrist and the harlot. And then something's going to happen to the false church and the Antichrist is going to do it. And we're going to see this as we return next time together in our study. All right? Let's... Um, oh, that's ugly, isn't it? It kind of makes you want to shake stuff off as you read about all of that. Aren't you glad that as you know Christ that you don't have to endure that? And that you'll get to return with the Lord as he, on the, right on the heels of a huge earthquake that levels everything except Jerusalem and sets everything up for the millennial kingdom. And that's just a marvelous thing to think about. And I don't deserve that. I don't deserve any of that honor or glory that comes from being a, a servant of the Lord. But the Lord stated that's what will happen, and so we get to do it. And so we'll give him the glory for it. Amen? Let's bow in prayer. Father, we thank you for an opportunity to look at... Uh, part of history, uh, part of the future, and see how they have, uh, as you wrote, written your word and inspired your writers, uh, of course they all agree and they point to the same area, and we can see that now and you've allowed us to live in a very exciting time, a time when your people are back in their land. It's never happened in the history of men that a people return to a land which 
from which they were deposed. And they're there and they wait and they don't know what they wait for and they think that they are in light and they're in darkness still. But we know, because your word has told us, that someday all of Israel that's truly Israel will be saved. And all the promises that you've promised them will be fulfilled just like you promised. And all the delivery and and the people will call on your name and no one will need to preach anymore because everyone will know. Lord, we're so grateful that those things still exist out in the future. But with the sweetness of your word also comes that bitterness of judgment. And we know that people lie uh, in deception even now and feel that they have understood things as they should be, have have, uh, described for themselves, at least to their own satisfaction, the world and its system and why things are like they are and have continued to call their own shots and they remain in darkness and sit under judgment. And Lord, that bothers me greatly. And so I pray that as we have opportunity to witness, that we'll be the faithful witness we're supposed to be. We desire very much for people to hear the good news. For my own family, Lord, I pray for them. That they may understand that you may bring someone else that can be more effective than I. And for all those who sit here, who have unsafe family members and friends, uh, Lord, I pray that you'll help us to be effective witnesses. And I pray you'll give us fruit because you're the one who has to do it. You have to draw, you have to open the eyes, and Lord, I pray that you'll do it. Open our hearts, open your word, open their mind, open our mouth, that we might be able to speak truth. Help us to do it faithfully as a habit. And we give you praise today, and thank you for the time we could spend together as saints. We look forward to the return of your Son. And in the meantime, we want to work as uh, you've desired for us to do. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen.